Greetings, let us stand for the call to worship. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will be glad and rejoice in you. The Lord reigns forever. He rules the world in righteousness. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. Those who know your name trust in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us unite our voices together and sing, Come Thou Almighty King, hymn number 492, and the lyrics and uh, will also be displayed. You may be seated, thank you. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to all of you who are with us, brothers and sisters, and to those who are watching us online, welcome as well. Um, this morning, uh, the message will be brought by the Reverend Corey Plockmeyer. Corey Plockmeyer is a CRC pastor and he's the Executive Director of Movement West Michigan. 
I am Darwin Glassford. If you're visiting, I'm the executive pastor here at Hardwick Ministries. And our regular preaching pastor, um, Reverend Bill Lindner, this morning is leading the closing service um, for New Heart um, Evangelical Presbyterian Church up in Muskegon, um, just north of us here. So Corey is willingly um, stepped in to, to bring the word to us this morning, and we're very grateful um, for that. There will be um, coffee and um, assorted munchies in the library afterwards, um, so we look forward to fellowshipping with you there. And there will be no post-service um, discussion, follow-up discussion this morning since Bill is out of town. Um, this week marks the beginning of a really busy week um, around campus. Um, Adventure Week begins tomorrow um, evening, um, Monday evening. And I'm sure there are many of you here that are volunteering and helping out um, with that kids program this week, right? I'm not hearing an enthusiastic response. If you would like to spend an evening, four, one evening, two evenings, three evenings, or even four evenings with the young people, I would um, encourage you to reach out to Becky. I do want to warn you, um, the primary activity is taking place here on Thursday night. Um, with a presentation by the Conquerors. And I have been invited to race my motorcycle down the center aisle of the Celebration um, Sanctuary and to ride it up onto the platform in order to begin the program. So if you want to experience your executive pastor riding his motorcycle in the sanctuary up on the platform, join us Thursday night. You won't want to miss it. And I promise not to crash. Okay, so Adventure Week this week. Um, next Sunday, we have, um, is July 4th weekend. Who can believe that already, July 4th? We'll be gathering at 9.30 um, out behind the pavilion for a combined worship service for, um, with Watershed and Fusion. Again, what time? 9.30, okay. Um, so we'll see you there. Um, there will be no celebration service in here next Sunday, and there'll be no live stream. And also, Summer Service Week um, begins July 16th through the 21st. Again, if you'd like to help out with Summer Service Week, there's lots of op opportunities um, there. Feel free to reach out to Pastor Mary DeWitt, who's coordinating the food there. So one other announcement that's not on the slide, I'll just go and mention. Um, we came back a little bit early from our Appalachian Trail trip um, due to um, lots and lots of rain and lots and lots of cold. Um, but we are scheduled to go back um, June 14th of 2024. So feel free to go ahead and mark your calendar now and to save those dates um, the week following if you're going to join us. Who's interested in going? Oh, there's some hands. All right. Good. Okay. Our, um, our question um, from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning comes from the section on prayer. And I believe the previous question, um, our father... Um, asked about what our Father and our, who art in heaven means. And this morning, the question um, is, what does the first petition mean? And the first petition is, hallowed be your name. So let us um, respond to the question, what does the first petition mean?
Thanks be to God. Let us stand and sing together. Breathe on me, breath of God. be seated. We just responded to Heidelberg Catechism question on prayer. Let us now unite our hearts in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming before you. We come because, because of your sacrifice for us in Jesus Christ, that through Christ our sins are covered and that you see us as blameless, you see us as holy, as righteous, as sanctified people. We know in our hearts, Lord, that that's not who we are as we go about our daily lives. But you see us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that in itself is amazing. And that in itself should give us confidence and should give us hope that you are at work in us as your spirit moves as your spirit moves to transform us into the image of Christ. We thank you for the privilege of coming together as the body of Christ, united by the gospel, united by Christ. Whether we worship here in celebration, across the hall in fusion, across campus in watershed, or scattered around the world worshiping you, we are united together as one family in Christ, and for that we give thanks. As we think about our ministries here, we are committed to ministries that help people, to help people walk the walk of faith, to learn the walk of faith, to be a place where we all invite each other and we invite our neighbors and our friends to join in a journey of being found in, formed by, and following Christ. As we think about our ministries that take place throughout the summer here, they are all shaped and informed by that. We give thanks that the group on the Appalachian Trail had a wonderful time in spite of the weather. 
a wonderful time not just enjoying the realities of your creation and the lush greenness of the Appalachian Mountains, but the richness of conversation as they walked, as they talked, as they wrestled, as they shared with how their lives are being transformed by the gospel and how they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ faithfully. We thank you for the student ministry group that spent the week at Roseland doing ministry on the south side of Chicago, for the stories they encountered, for the stories they shared with each other, for the way that your spirit is and continues to move among them. We also thank you that as a community, we are called together as brothers and sisters in Christ to walk together, to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. And this past week, we were saddened by the passing of Cal Colleen, a longtime and faithful member here, a man who loved Jesus, a man who exuded the gospel and all that he did. And as he has passed from this life into the next, as he sits at the banquet table of the Lord, we give thanks. At the same time, we, we acknowledge, Lord, that as a community now, we walk alongside the family as they mourn his passing, as they learn to reorient their lives without his presence. And we ask that you would move, that your spirit would move among us to support and to care for that family in ways that are beyond their own imagination. And yet this week, Lord, we think about things that are coming. We think about over 100 kids that will pour into this sanctuary and participate in Adventure Week, that will hear the gospel. And we pray that your spirit would be moving among them. We pray for the meeting of council this week and for Neighbors Plus board. And we pray for the Lakeshore Little People's board as they all try to discern how you are working and how you are moving and how we can participate in the work of your spirit in this community. And we pray for summer service week. Again, over a hundred some middle school young people will invade our campus and they will come to study, to reflect, to serve, to be encouraged, and to be challenged, to find their identity, to be formed by, and to follow you faithfully. And so, Lord, we also pray for our worship services across campus this morning. We pray for Corey as he brings the message to us here in celebration, as well as fusion. We pray for Pastor Aaron as he brings the message to Watershed. We pray for Pastor Florencio as he leads the Mission community. We pray for Drew, we pray for Sarah, we pray for Jane as they lead us in worship as well. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray for our brother, Luke Kerrig, in Ireland. We pray for the many other missionaries we support in Honduras and around the world. We pray that your presence would be felt by them. And so, Lord, as we pray, there are so many things that we could pray. And there are many things that we don't know how to pray for. But your disciples asked this question, Lord, and it was an amazing question because they'd spent so much time with you and they had heard you pray. And yet, Lord, they came to you and they asked this very simple question. Teach us to pray. And you responded with these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts 
as we forgive debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Corey, please give Corey a warm welcome as he comes to open God's word for us. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you here at the Celebration Campus. As Pastor Darwin mentioned in his prayer, I'm also preaching at the Fusion Campus this morning. Uh, my family will be worshiping at the Watershed Campus, so I might hop over there just for a couple songs in between services. We'll see how the morning goes. Uh, but it is a joy to be here with another part of the Hardwick family as we open God's Word together. As uh, Pastor Darwin mentioned, I'm the Executive Director of Movement West Michigan, and if you haven't heard of us other than those times that I preached a few months ago, that's okay. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization that that works to unite the capital C Church of Holland and Zealand so that we can work together for the flourishing of the community. We believe that the unity of the body of Christ is really critical in order to see this community truly flourish. So you might recall a few months ago when Hardaway participated in a project where we gave care packages to bless the teachers of various local schools. And Hardawike was one of 34 churches that worked together to make sure that all 3,600 school workers at 57 different buildings across the Holland, Zealand area received a care package, a thank you package to say, we love you, teachers, school workers, bus drivers, administrators, ad assistants. Movement West Michigan coordinated that effort behind the scenes to make sure that we can show every teacher that the church of Holland, Zealand loves them and cares for them. And so it is a joy to be with you this morning in a different capacity to read uh, together from God's word, to hear what it means to pray, hallowed be your name. And so to begin, we, uh, we read together two scripture passages. The first, uh, the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, which we just prayed together, but let's hear that again when Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And to consider that one line, hallowed be your name, we're going to look together at Psalm 115, where we hear these words. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, you who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. 
May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is my dog, Apollo. Apollo is a giant dog. He's a German Shepherd Rottweiler mix, and he has a giant bark. That's intentional. We want that dog who, if somebody knocks on our door, that there's just that moment of awareness that there is a giant dog waiting inside to greet you. Now, that's a good thing overall, but I will admit he can be a little scary. And so, for instance, this week, my daughter had a friend over, and this friend is not super comfortable around dogs in general, let alone a giant dog named Apollo who has a giant bark. And so we made sure to put Apollo away so that she wouldn't be scared. But the reality is, as we have worked with Apollo and gotten to know him, because he isn't always as calm and sweet as he is in this photo, one of the things that I had to learn was why dogs are reactive, why a dog like Apollo may bark that giant bark. And what I learned through working with our trainers was that really what looks like to us aggression is often fear. Dogs bark with that big scary bark because they are afraid. I'm going to call that aggressive timidity. When we're so afraid that it comes out as aggression. And the reality is is that when I stop and think about it, I realize that while it's easy to see aggressive timidity in my giant 90-pound dog, when I stop and reflect on it, I realize that I too engage in aggressive timidity. But for us, I suspect that usually aggressive timidity takes the form of one of three things, not standing at the window and barking at every passerby, at least I hope not, but rather aggressive timidity for us looks like control, control, control. And the irony of it all is that prayer is, prayer should be an exercise in the act of giving up control. That when we pray, we are acknowledging our inability to control the world around us. When we pray, it should be an acknowledgement that there is a God of the universe that we are handing our lives over to and saying, God, not your will, but my will. That's next week. And yet, when I stop and think about it, I suspect that one of the reasons why so many of us, myself included, have a hard time with prayer is because we don't like to give up control. And so here at Hardawike, in the the three worshiping communities at Hardawike, we are in the midst of this series on the Lord's Prayer. Pastor Aaron at Watershed joked a few weeks ago, right, we just spent 31 weeks walking through the story, sometimes taking entire books of the Bible in one week. Well, this time we're doing the opposite. Right now we're taking like four words at a time. 
And so this week we stop and we look at that second line of the Lord's Prayer, the first petition as the Heidelberg Catechism refers to it, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is not exactly a word that we use very often. I don't tend to walk around my family's uh, house saying the word hallowed or hallowed or even, I don't know, whatever other version we might have heard of this word. It's not a word we use very often, but it means may it be holy. But even that, what does it mean for us to pray to God as the first line of this prayer. What does it mean for us to pray, God, may your name be holy? Because uh, well, God is holy. My prayer doesn't change that. Whether I pray or not, it does not change the holiness of God. And so this morning, we're going to look together at what this prayer means and what it means for us to pray it through the lens of Psalm 115. So first, verses 1 through 8, right? Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And what I'm going to suggest is that when we pray, hallowed be your name, that the goal of this prayer is to replace an attitude of aggressive timidity with an, a humble audacity. That praying, hallowed be your name, is an act of replacing an aggressive timidity with a humble audacity. And we see that through three postures that we're going to see in Psalm 115. And the first is what I'm going to call a posture of humility. These first eight verses of Psalm 115 remind us that there is a separation to who God is. That God is holy and we are not, not to us God, but to your name be the glory. There is an act when we pray, hallowed be your name, of reminding ourselves that God is God and we are not. That God is something holy and entirely different. And then, of course, we go through this whole series of the things that the idols of the ancient world had, but God does not, to remind us that God is different from, God is separate from all of the other things that we might worship. And one of the challenges, I think, whenever we encounter the idea of idols in the ancient scriptures is that idols in the ancient world, they were physical things that you could see, right? They had hands and feet and eyes and, and noses, right? They were, they were created, crafted statues and sculptures that people would worship. And, and it's easy for us to lose track of idolatry today because we don't tend to have those physical sculptures that we're worshiping at. But idolatry, the worship of idols in Scripture, ultimately comes down to putting one's trust, one's ultimate trust, in something other than God. 
Let me say that again. Idolatry in scripture comes down to putting one's ultimate trust in something other than God. In other words, control. Looking at a world that can sometimes feel like it's out of control. Encountering a world that, that can feel like we don't know, we can't, we can't make sense of it all and we try to then control it. We try to take hold of that and put it into something that we can hold on to. And so our idols may not have hands and feet and eyes and noses, but we might be concerned about that feeling of security and safety. And so we'll take whatever measures necessary to make sure we feel safe. We may not have hands and eyes and feet and noses, but we may be especially concerned about the skills that we have and the degrees behind our name and the letters behind our name and we, we can put our hope, our ultimate hope that, that the world may fall apart but I've got those, those degrees, those, those skills, those lists of accomplishments and achievements. My, my resume has all of the things necessary that I'm going to be okay. Or how about our reputation? We put our trust and our hope in the idea that I've got a good reputation. People see me and they think he's a good person. When my son was born, he spent about a week in the NICU out in Sioux City, Iowa. It was an experience I had never had before. It was overwhelming. It was exhausting. There was a lot of questions and unknowns. We didn't know how long he was going to be there. My wife was still recovering from her, from, from delivery, and so she couldn't even be in the NICU with him for the first 24 hours or so, and so I was running back and forth from the NICU to her hospital room, trying to make sure that both my wife and my son were okay, and I was completely exhausted, overwhelmed, and terrified. And at one point, the nurse came in to check on us, and I just broke down in tears. And she looks at me and she says, do you want me to call the chaplain? And my instinctual response in this moment of utter breakdown, overwhelmed and exhausted, to this simple question, do you want me to call the chaplain, was, no, I'm a pastor, I don't need to see the chaplain. Because even in that moment, I have to admit that I was more concerned with looking like I didn't have it all together. Newsflash, I didn't looking like I had it all together and then admitting that I needed help. Aggressive timidity looks like control. And praying, hallowed be your name, reminds us, it gives us, it puts us in this posture of humility to recognize that God is God and we are not. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 9 picks up and, and the psalmist writes, All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Think uh, the psalmist wants us to pick up a message here. 
Right? Not once, not twice, but three times. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. So we spent the first eight verses being reminded that God is God and we are not, that there is a separation and otherness to God, that, that we are not God, that we are not in control, but God is. And then the psalmist spends the next five verses reminding us that God is our help and shield, that God wants to bless us, bless us, bless us, bless us over and over and over again. And I believe that when we pray, hallowed be your name, that the second posture we are invited to hold is a posture of acceptance. Because God, we as God's people are favored, God's people are blessed, God is our help and shield. And we'll talk in a few minutes about what that doesn't mean, because immediately I think we have an idea of what it means to be blessed. But first I want us to just rest for a moment in this reality of being accepted by God, the same God who is God of the universe, and we are not. You know, as a child, I was taught to treat the sanctuary of the church as a place of reverence or respect. The thought of the pastor driving his motorcycle up the center aisle of the sanctuary, whew, if I had suggested it, I would have been in trouble. And often comparisons were made, right, to, to being in the presence of the king or the president, right? And I was invited to imagine if you were to go and meet with the president, what would you think? How would you act? How would you behave? But I think that that comparison misses a fundamentally important point. Yes, when we pray, we step into the presence of the God of the universe. Yes, when we worship, we are worshiping the king. But we are not guests of the king. Friends, we are his children. As I thought about that, I thought about these images that we've seen. Right on the left, President George H.W. Bush holding his grandson in the Oval Office, pointing out the Christmas decorations on the Christmas tree. On the right, President Jimmy Carter, right, I'm, I'm bipartisan here. Uh, President Jimmy Carter with his daughter on his lap, sitting at the Resolute desk, reading to her, showing her, talking to her in this intimate moment with his child. There's a juxtaposition in these photos that I hope catches our eye. This is the Oval Office, right? A place of wonder, of awe, right? The seat of power, certainly in our country, one of the seats of power, arguably one of the most recognizable seats of power in the world. As I was preparing for this message, I was reading various accounts of people who have on, on tours because of their connections, right? You can only tour the Oval Office if you happen to have a connection who works in the White House, and so I was reading accounts of people who had that opportunity to tour the White House and all of them spoke of that sense of awe, that sense of wonder that happens when you walk into the Oval Office, right? There are things that you do not do when you are a guest in the Oval Office. 
There are rules and restrictions, one of which you can't take photos if you happen to have that tour of the Oval Office. Right? This one of the seats of power of our country, arguably one of the most recognizable seats of power in the world, and yet... These two men in this moment, they do not cease to be president in the moment that these photos were taken. Rather, they are parents and grandparents loving their children and grandchildren. Friends, I believe that when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are invited to a posture of acceptance and belonging. Aggressive timidity looks like fear that God will throw us out. Aggressive timidity tries to get all of my ducks in a row because if I don't, then God will be done with me and the other shoe will fall. Aggressive timidity seeks to control and says, I'm going to only show up with, with the, the part of myself that I feel comfortable sharing with God, for ignoring the fact that God knows our entire being. God knows all of who we are. But aggressive timidity says, I can only show up in prayer in a, in a, in a version of myself that looks the best. I can only show up at church if we have everything in order. We can only show up in the body of Christ with our best looking version of ourselves, the version that is put together, the version that has it all figured out, the version that doesn't have doubts and struggles and anxiety. It's aggressive timidity that looks like control because we're afraid. But one more political picture, this one from across the pond. Remember these photos of Prince Louis? This was at the, uh, the, the Diamond Jubilee for Queen Elizabeth. Moments of extraordinary ceremony. And when we stop and think about it, we all know that Prince Louis is a kid. And that nobody cares how he acted during these moments of extraordinary ceremony because he's a kid. And I would certainly not want the behavior of my child, who is about the same age as Prince Louis, to be judged on a national, international scope. In fact, I will admit, when I downloaded this photo from the internet, it is literally uh, titled, when I just saved it from the title it was saved to online, it is titled, Bratty Prince. But when we stop and think about it for a moment, we realize he's just a kid who's doing what kids do interacting with his mom the way that countless others of us have interacted with our own children. Well, friends, guess what? When it comes to the presence of God, we are all bratty princes and princesses. Every single one of us is just a child before God. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Because that is the story of the grace of Jesus Christ. That even though over and over again I have thumbed my nose at God, even though over and over again I have chosen to try to control the situation and the scenario, even though over and over and over again I have put my own concerns for my reputation, my well-being, my sense of control, even though I have done that over and over and over again, I am still loved and accepted by the God of the universe. And forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. 
And somehow, friends, I know that it is possible for us to go to church week after week after week, year after year after year, and somehow not catch the fullness of that grace. And we can walk out of here still today convinced that what matters is that God sees a version of myself that I want him to see. We can walk out of this place convinced that that we need to keep a tight lid on what people see and think about us. We can leave this place more concerned with our reputation, with our well-being, being with our sense of financial security than with simply giving it over to God. Friends, I have done it. I have been there. I went for years through my own journey going to church week after week, sometimes often twice on Sunday, and somehow not understanding the grace of Jesus Christ. When we pray, hallowed be your name, I am convinced that one of the things that it reminds us of is that, yes, we walk into the presence of the God of the universe. Yes, we are in the presence of a holy God who is completely separate from who we are. But we are not in that presence as one who is afraid. We are not in the presence of God as one who has to control ourselves or make ourselves look a certain way or act a certain way because God has already accepted us as his children. God has embraced us as a beloved child sitting on his lap embraced by the God of the universe because he knows that we are all just bratty princes and princesses. And so when we pray, we pray with that posture of acceptance Last week we had a, a dinner together as a family and my, my father-in-law asked my daughter to pray and as my daughter was praying before the meal, she, I was caught by, as she prayed, she prayed, God bless this food onto our bodies. And I thought that's not the way an 11-year-old normally talks. And I realized, of course, where had she learned that phrase, bless this food onto our bodies, because that's how I pray. And where did I learn that phrase? Where did I learn to pray that way? Because that's the way that my parents prayed. And there's, not, there's nothing wrong with that. I want to say really clearly, right? God is gracious and accepting even by our paltry efforts and the words that we say that sometimes don't make sense even to ourselves. But I'm reminded that when we pray, hallowed be your name, this posture of acceptance means that God doesn't need us to use the right words. God doesn't need us to say things a certain way. Pastor Aaron invited uh, those of us in the watershed community to consider reading this book, uh, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And I've been reading it. And the very first chapter, it's a very practical guide to prayer. And the very first chapter says, just pray. Just do it. Just talk to God. Just don't worry about what you say or what what you don't say. Just talk. Just talk to God. And I was amazed, even for myself, somebody who is supposed to be, in theory, good at this, right? Somebody who has prayed in settings like this countless times over the course of a career in ministry. How odd it can feel to just pray without thinking of the words. Because God doesn't need us to use the right words. Because we have been accepted and forgiven. 
Aggressive timidity says, I can't pray because I might say it wrong, I might get it wrong. But humble audacity says, I need to pray because I belong. But as we finish the psalm, we find one last posture. Sorry, I hit the wrong button. Went backwards. Get to see that image one more time. There we go. Verse 14 of Psalm 115. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. I'm going to suggest that the last posture of prayer that this petition, hallowed be your name, gives us is a posture of action. Right? Did you catch the the big promises in those last few verses of the psalm, right? Promises of flourishing, promises that, that we will have eternal life, right? The dead go down into the place of silence, but we will extol the Lord now and forevermore, right? These huge promises of what God offers to us and who we are before God. Last week, I was at a prayer gathering And it was one of my friends, he's a a local pastor, I'll just call him Jay. Jay was there, and Jay has a very different tradition than I do. He comes from a very different theological background. background. And when Jay prays, he prays a very strong sense of, in Jesus' name, we declare this thing to be the case. We claim this promise that you have made to us. It's a very different style of prayer than what I grew up with in the Christian Reformed Church, what I have prayed myself for most of my life. And afterwards, Jay and I were talking, and and he certainly acknowledges that he has a different style of prayer than many of us in the room with him. But he said, well, do you know why I pray that way? I said, no, I'd love to hear more. I'm always trying to learn. And he pointed me to John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. John 16, 23 and 24 says this, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. He said, it's kind of confusing, right? The word ask shows up a lot of times. And it, you know, we, we won't ask for anything, but we will ask. And you didn't, you haven't asked, but you will ask and I will give. And he pointed me, he said, go look at the Greek. And sure enough, there's actually two different verb forms for the verb ask in this verse. One form is the word that the, Greek, that the ancient Greek language uses to show, like, I just want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a favor. Right? The second verb form for to ask is a verb that I, if I were to be translating on my own without having the English in front of me, I would usually translate it demand. It's asking what is owed of you. And Jay pointed out to me that when you read through with the Greek, really it says, in that day you will no longer ask me for a favor for anything. Very truly I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask as one that is owed in my name. Until now, you have not asked as one who is owed for anything in my name. Ask as one who is owed, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. 
And his point to me was that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are invited to approach prayer as those who are withdrawing from a bank account. Right? He said, if I ask you, hey, can you give me 10 bucks? You might choose to give it to me. You might not, depending on how you feel. He said, but if I walk into the bank and say, please give me $10, assuming that it's in my bank account, I'm not asking for a favor. I'm asking for that which is owed. And he challenged me to think about what it looks like to pray as one to whom God has made promises. Now, I want to say really, really clearly, there is a spectrum here. I believe it is possible to pray with so much humility, right, God, your will, not mine, right, I'm going to ask for this thing, but, but it may or may not happen, and I know that, and I believe that, and that's okay, and I'm okay with that. But it is possible for us to pray with so much humility as to almost be passive, right, and that that can actually become a form of control, right, we're protecting ourselves. God, your will, not mine, because I don't dare get my hopes up. Your will, not mine, because I don't dare hope, I don't dare trust that you might actually do something in response to this prayer. For me, I will admit this is where I have spent most of my life. Praying so much with this posture of humility that I don't really dare trust or hope that God might just answer those prayers. Now for my friend Jay, he spends a lot of his time over here on the other side, right? So much ingrained in the promises of God that I will claim it, I will declare it, and because God has said it, it will come to pass. Now, the danger on this side, right? If the danger over there is so much humility that we end up not wanting to, con- that we end up controlling by sort of letting go and we're protecting ourselves, the danger over here, I will fully admit, is what we might call sort of that name it, claim it, prosperity gospel, right? God told me I could have that giant, that, that, that boat because God has promised me that I'm supposed to, uh, you know, use my, my possessions to bless those around me. So God, you promised me that I'm going to have that boat, so I'm going to name it and claim it, right? There's an idea of blessing that if we're not careful, if we spend our time in this world over here, that we can lose sight of the controlling phrase in Jesus' name. But I suspect that many of us have spent so much of our time over here that it would be just about impossible for us to be pulled so far this way as to lose sight of that controlling phrase, right? Because I want to point out the extremes on either end, they both are aggressive timidity, right? Control by sort of such a posture of passivity or control by saying, I'm going to name it and claim it, right? Both of them are forms of control. Both of them are aggressive timidity, the extremes on either end. But there is so much room in between to pray as those to whom God has made promises and say, God, this is who you are and what you have declared over my life, what you have declared over me, and I am going to pray as one who has been made those promises, And if you're like me, that is hard and uncomfortable and different. And new is scary and scary is bad. And so we go right back over here. 
But I believe that the posture of praying, hallowed be your name, invites us to a posture of action. And to pray as those who are declaring the promises of God, we need to know two things. Number one, we need to know, we need to know the promises of God. And number two, we need to know who we are before God. Right, Jay would tell me that to pray in Jesus' name, it's not like magic words that we add at the end. It's not just about putting ourselves in that posture of trying to pray for what God wants for us, but it is declaring with authority that we are the ones authorized to make that withdrawal. It's a different tradition. It's one of the gifts in my role that I get to interact with people who come from such a wide variety of Christian faith traditions And I'm not saying he's got it all right and we've got it all wrong. Like I said, I think we all need to live somewhere in the middle of that. But if you're like me, I've spent so much of my time over here that I need to be pulled just a little bit more in this direction to say, God, you have made this promise. May your name be holy because this is who you are. And now empower me to be who you have called me to be, to have the things that I need in order to live that out, to do with courage and audacity that which I am called to do as your follower living in this world. Aggressive timidity looks like control, but humble audacity says, I know who I am before God, and I know what God has promised to me, and I am going to live as one who has been promised. And so, friends, I want to invite you in your prayer and in your living to have that humble audacity. You see, that humble audacity struck me. This is really hard to read, I'm sorry, but I wanted to get the whole Heidelberg Catechism question and answer on there. We read this all together, but look at that bottom four lines. And it means, help us to direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will, not, will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Stop and think about that again, right? Hallowed be your name. What does it mean to pray this? It means praying that everything we think, say, and do would be such that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas said, to invoke the name of the free, mighty God as patron of our causes is to take the name of God in vain. Those who are being formed by praying our Father who art in heaven, how holy be your name, are not permitted to abuse his holiness, but to abuse the holiness of God by attempting to put a leash on God, then dragging God into our crusades and cruelties. Those who are praying, holy be your name, are not permitted to abuse the holiness of God by attempting to put a leash on God, then dragging God into our crusades and cruelties. Friends, let me admit it, I've done it. I've looked at those with whom I disagree and thought, well, at least I have God on my side. May even have said it. I've marshaled God as the flag for my anger. I've marshaled God as the, the, the rightful protector and patron of my side, and often without even realizing I was doing it. I was serving a church in Iowa, and I was, it was my first congregation, and about a year into preaching at that church, I had a family who one day told me, we're leaving the church. 
And so I'm really sorry to hear that. Why are you leaving? He said, because your sermons are too political. You're all one side. You're, you're, you're too much pushing the propaganda of one party. And I said, I have never said anything political in my sermons. I said, I, I'm very, very careful not to push a policy agenda in my sermons, right? I, I don't talk about policy. I talk about our posture as followers of Jesus Christ living in the world. He said, yeah, but when you only talk about one set of issues, it makes it pretty clear where you stand. I hadn't even realized it. But I was putting a leash on God and pulling God into my set of crusades, my set of concerns. There is a humble audacity to the idea that everything we think, say, and do should hallow God's name, should point to God's almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth, as the catechism says. If we are truly going to have all that we think, say, and do point to those extraordinary holiness of God, well, I'm humbled by that idea. And I hope you are too. One last aspect of this that I want to think about, and then I promise I'll get us out of here just a few minutes after 10 o'clock. I'm struck by that idea of flourishing and the idea that we flourish together. Now, I know that's hard to read because I wanted to put it all on one slide again, but I want to point something out. This, this is the world that I live in, and that's asking this question, what does it look like to flourish as a city? Right, and this is Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25, and it's God's promises of what the future holds for us in God's new creation. And a friend of mine, Eric, has sort of summarized it in that column on the right, the promises that God makes. What does it look like to have a flourishing city in God's world? I said before that in order to claim those promises of God, we need to know two things. Number one, who, what God has promised us. And number two, who I am before God. And I would add that if we want to really embrace that this vision is not just for me and you and all of us as individuals, but it is for our world, it is for our city, then we need to know two more things. And that's number three, we need to know the promises of God for our community. And we need to know who we are before God together as a body. Because I'm convinced that true flourishing for our city is found in places like Isaiah chapter 65. And by the way, a couple of years ago, the, uh, Harvard University did a study on human flourishing. And would you believe it or not, that it mapped almost entirely the domains of flourishing you can map beautifully onto Isaiah 65. It's almost as if God has wired us such that scripture points to the reality of who we are, how we're wired, and what it means to flourish. And when world-class scholars at places like Harvard do this from a completely secular point of view, they still arrive at the idea that the vision of Isaiah 65 is pretty well reflected in what they view as what it means to flourish. And so for just a moment before we wrap up our time here together this morning, I want to invite you to wonder what it would look like if we prayed together for God's name to be holy. That yes, my life would reflect that promise of flourishing. Yes, my life and your life and our individual lives would reflect the almighty power, wisdom, justice, mercy, and kindness of God, as the catechism suggests. But what would it look like if we prayed such that not just my life and not just your life, but our life together as a church would reflect the almighty power, wisdom, justice, mercy, love, and kindness of God 
What would it look like for our whole city, for the capital C Church of Holland and Zealand, collectively, to reflect the almighty justice, mercy, kindness, love of God? I believe it looks like 3,600 teachers being shown we love you. I believe it looks like praying together for the flourishing of our city. I believe it looks not like dragging God into our crusades and marshalling God to support our particular viewpoints, but it looks like humble audacity. To live as those who know that God is God and we are not. To live as those who have a posture of humility, a posture of acceptance, and ultimately a power of action. To live humbly and audaciously as God's children in this world. Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Heavenly Father, That is our prayer, that our lives as individuals and as a community would reflect that prayer. That all that we think, say, and do would point others to your justice, mercy, kindness, love, power, to your hope. God, we thank you that we are accepted as your children. And if there's any here, God, who are wrestling with that, who are wondering if they truly can belong to you, God, I just pray that you would open their heart to know that their acceptance in your presence is not based on anything we think, say, or do, but it is entirely because it is who you are and your love for us. Empower us to live with humble audacity. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say together,
Friends, as we go forth from this place, go forth with God's blessing. May God go before you to guide you. May God go beside you to befriend you. Beneath you to support you. And behind you to protect you. Friends, do not fear the God of the universe has welcomed us into his presence, not as honored guests, but as beloved children. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And we all say together. Amen.